you know we're in the book of Mark, so you can go ahead and turn there, the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 13 today, chapter 13. We're going to be looking at quite a few verses, going to move through them at a pretty rapid pace, so uh, I hope you'll stay focused. But we're going to start with just reading the first 13 um, verses, and then we'll look at the rest of it in a few minutes. So if you'll follow along with me as I read uh, the first 13 verses. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given in you, to you at that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be delivered, will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this body, this church. God, we thank you for giving us your word that guides us and leads us into truth. God, I pray today as we look at a, a pretty difficult passage, God, I pray that you'll give us clarity of mind, and God, help us to understand what you're saying, but God, help us to, uh, to not just be uh, intellectually driven by just learning more, but God, help us to be motivated to live out the love that you've given to us in our, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit by the way that we live our lives and the way that we uh, love our neighbors as ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said in the prayer, this is one of the more difficult passages in the book of Mark, for sure the most difficult passage in the book of Mark, and we're going to talk for reasons about that in a minute, but I want to illustrate really the bigger truth here real quick before we jump into the message. So let me get uh, Josiah, can you come and help me here real quick? Uh, Josiah, come and help me, and then I need uh, somebody tall, and so uh, Keller, can you come and help me real quick? All right, so Josiah, grab that 10-pound weight over there. Uh, the five-pound weight. You grab the five-pound weight, and Keller, you grab the ten-pound weight, and bring them up here, and stand right there in the front. Just walk over to the middle. All right, and we're going to make a little makeshift teeter-totter here, okay? And so, here's what I'm going to have you do, uh, Josiah. Just spot it. Don't let it fall, but just lay that right here on the end. What's going to happen when you lay this on the end? If you let go, what's going to happen? 
it's going to fall. Right, stand right here so people can see. All right, so right, so we're going to put the weight there on that side, okay? Now, Keller, what, what, since you're tall, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to hold the 10-pound weight. I want you to hold the curtain up in the middle so that Josiah can't see me, okay? All right, Josiah, don't, don't try to look through. All right, look straight ahead, all right? All right, Josiah, uh, you got your five-pound weight on there? All right, so watch what happens with the teeter-totter, okay? You ready to watch him? Let's, let's uh, put this up here so he can't see across. All right, watch what happens to the teeter-totter. Okay, you watching? What's going on? It's going up. All right, cool. All right, go ahead and put that down. All right, so what do you think was happening there that, that, uh, during that little demonstration? Okay, so... This side was heavier than that side, and so it pushed it up. How do you know that? Because <laughs> you've learned that, yeah, okay. And so, uh, unless you cheated and looked through the curtain, what was causing this side to be heavier than that side? The weight, okay. So the weight was causing that side to be heavier than the other side, okay. So how do you know that? Okay. Okay, you've seen things, so you were looking off experience and that kind of stuff, all right? So you're making an assumption here that the weight was laying here when Keller actually, what was going on here? I was pushing with my hands. But that's very normal that you would think that, all right? In fact, I was hoping you would think that, okay? So fist bump right here. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. If you carry that back over there, that'd be great. Thanks, Josiah. And, and so I think that's what we do when we approach these passages that deal with the end times. There's information there that we can look at and know that something is going to happen. Something's happening. God's predicting something. He's telling us something. But many times we do what Josiah and I and most of you would have done the same thing. We infer that because there is heavier and is moving that we know what's going on on the other side of the curtain, whereas in reality, sometimes we jump to conclusions that we shouldn't jump to. And when you're dealing with a passage that deals with the end times, there are a lot of people who jump to a lot of conclusions that just aren't there in the Scripture or not clear in the Scripture. And you probably have experienced it just like I've experienced it, that many people want to make predictions Everything that happens is a sign for the end, and they live their lives in this state of, I would say, what uh, really uh, what was talked about her earlier with Stephen, anxiety, with anxiety about the future when, in fact, God is giving us something that we should trust and, and depend upon him because of what he's taught us. So, uh, Josiah, thank you. I uh, hope you're not embarrassed. I was hoping you'd do that because that, that's what, uh, uh, so give him a hand, all right? Give him a hand. Yeah, thank you, Josiah. And so in Mark 13, Jesus is going to predict something that I believe he's pointing to that was fulfilled in history. In the first part of Mark, something that was fulfilled. He's going to tell us that there's some things here that, that we're not real clear on, and we don't know exactly how we should interpret those things. And there's hidden, and maybe we can't figure it out, the details of it. But that's okay, because Jesus, in fact, he's going to tell us later that we don't need to know specifics on everything. So look back in verse 1. And look what Jesus said. Let's set the context here, what's going on. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that a lot of what's been happening has been happening in the temple. And in the temple, 
Uh, Jesus has been in confrontations with the religious leaders of those days. Uh, more uh, closely to last week, we talked about the scribes and these people who were confronting Jesus, and Jesus actually had questions for them. And then we saw also that he pointed out their just pious hypocrisy, just how they were living life, like being trying to be all that, but in reality they were not living out what they said they did. And then we also saw that there was a widow who gave to an offering, and Jesus in the temple area there, he commented on her giving, and then he made a comment about some rich people who were coming by and dropping in a lot of money into the offering plate, and he made comment about that as well. All that happened in the temple area there in Jerusalem. And so now they're leaving, he and his disciples are leaving the temple area, and they, the disciples make this observation about the, uh, the temple. They, they were basically saying, Man, this is an impressive place, isn't it, Jesus? Look around. In verse 1, he said, wonderful stones in this wonderful building. And if you were here some weeks back, I showed a video of what the temple would have looked like. All right, this thing wasn't just impressive. I mean, it was one of the ancient wonders of the, of the world back in those days. I mean, this was a marvel, engineering marvel. It was an amazing, amazing accomplishment. And if you've been in church and you know a little bit about background of the Old Testament, you know that the original temple was built by Solomon, David's son Solomon, and then that temple was destroyed, and then uh, there was a rebuilt temple, and that temple was quite a bit smaller than Solomon's temple, and then when Herod the Great became king about the time of Jesus, shortly before Jesus, he started some massive renovations on the temple, and he actually uh, ended up making the temple double the size, approximately, of what Solomon's temple was. And so this, this was a massive structure. It was, it was huge. And not only was it just an amazing structure, we talked about this also. I mean, this temple meant so much to the Jewish people. This temple revealed God's pleasure, God's satisfaction, his, his blessing upon his people, because here God came and his power dwelled at this place and it was special to the Jewish people. It was made them feel like they were important because God, they were God's chosen people. And so you can imagine with the, the scope and size of this building as well as the significance of this building to the people, when Jesus says what he said in verse 2, you can imagine that the disciples and anyone around him who heard this being said were pretty much taken back. Look what he said. He said, do you see these great buildings, this temple compound? He said, there will not be one stone left upon another. They're going to be all thrown down and destroyed. So Jesus marks, I mean, devastating. I mean, this was the heart and the soul of Israel's worship for God. So how could God allow his sacred house of worship to be re reduced to rubble with so uh, much effort had gone into it to build it and honor God and worship God through it? And so it's understandable what the disciples ask of Jesus next. In verse 3, they go over to the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Uh, I've never been to Israel, but I think it's a pretty cool picture. Show this picture here of what it would have looked like. This would have been the viewpoint uh, where the gold dome is. That's the dome of the rock where approximately the temple would have sat during this time period. We're looking from the Mount of Olives, so you can see the disciples and Jesus had this beautiful view of the temple area there. And so Jesus is going to, uh, to explain to them what's going to happen next. And so in verse 3, he says, as they're sitting over there, he says, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, pull him aside privately. Jesus, we got to ask you a question about this. This is a big deal, what you said. All right, Jesus, tell us, 
when will these things be? Okay, when's it going to happen? And what will be the signs when these things are about to be accomplished? So, Jesus, you say this temple is going to be destroyed. Not one rock will be standing upon another rock. Jesus, that's a big, bold prediction. When is that going to happen? And how will we know that's going to happen? And Jesus isn't going to give them the specifics to those, but he's going to tell them some pretty cool, amazing things that we're going to see here. Uh, one year, not too many years ago, eight or ten years ago, I, I took the youth group here when I was youth pastor to Florida State basketball game. And I don't know if anyone in here would remember this if you were part of the group then. But as we walked up to the game, there were uh, you know a handful, a dozen people there passing out these little flyers, these little tracks, and they literally on the thing it, it told us the earth it will end on this date. Everything will end on this date, and they gave us the date. And I had to really work hard to restrain our students from almost mocking them and like, hey, that can't be true. The Bible says nobody knows. All right, you can't know that. And they and some of them began to actually engage these people. There are lots of people who want to make these predictions, make uh, these these calls on when Jesus is coming back, and they put together impressive charts and diagrams and show you things, and they end up concluding, right here it is. But what has happened, if you can go on Wikipedia and actually look at the list of people who made end-time predictions, and there's been dozens and dozens of those people who have had public, uh, like, here's the date, it's going to end, and of course those dates come and go. Jesus did not want us to know specifically when the end times were going to happen, but when it comes to this temple matter, he gives them some pretty good indicators, but he doesn't tell them exactly when this is going to happen. And it was actually fulfilled just literally a few years later. On August 4th, 70 AD, the Romans had had enough of the rebellious, defiant Jews, and they came in and they just destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, like, not just conquered it, not just beat them down, but like flattened the city. In fact, historians estimated 600,000 Jews were killed and some 90,000 were brought to Rome as slaves. And in that, the temple was completely obliterated, completely, completely, utterly destroyed. This was just a few years after what Jesus says today. And why did this happen? We talked about this some weeks ago, but I think we need to revisit it because it's so critical to our faith. It's so critical to what Jesus did, and it changed everything, which was the title of the sermon that week when we talked about it. You may remember this story from Scripture. A woman had come, was at the well to draw water, and Jesus was there. And his disciples had went into town. The woman came, and, and she began, she and Jesus began to talk to each other. Jesus initiated a conversation with her. And you remember she's the one that had been married a bunch of times. And, and Jesus said, go get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You have five husbands. You're living with one. You remember, and, and, and as he's having this conversation, it's funny. She kind of just drops this random, it seems like random question on Jesus. In John chapter 4, she, she asked him, hey, um, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that we should worship in Jerusalem. The Jews say that. Jesus, you're, you're a smart guy. You're a rabbi. You know, you seem like you know what's going on here. Like, tell us, all right? Which one is it? Is it that mountain where we worship, or is it Jerusalem? And Jesus responded to her, and he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem we will worship the Father. 
you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is in the Jews. But he says, the hour is coming, and it's now here, uh, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking those who will worship him, it says. So he says, it's not about a location. It's not about a temple building. It's about spirit and truth. See, Jesus changes everything. The temple was going to be demolished very shortly, and Jesus was ascended back into heaven, and this confirmed the reality that Jesus was its replacement, and Jesus is the only mediator between us and the Father. Jesus replaced the temple, and he brought an end to the way that people related to God. It changed everything. Like I said uh, a, a few weeks ago, the end of the Jewish era the end of the Jewish time where God's prominence was on them as his chosen special people shifted. Now all of a sudden he creates the church and the church, we're the ones who are to carry the message to the ends of the earth, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so the end of the Jewish age, it began with the death, death and resurrection of Jesus, making the Old Testament covenant obsolete, but it ended in fullness with the destruction of the temple and the end of the Old Testament sacrifices. No longer could these sacrifices be offered because the temple was completely gone. What Jesus had said happened, it was completely obliterated. There was nothing left. And so no longer is there one place in one country where people gather to worship. Thankfully, you and I don't have to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to encounter God in the most real way. We worship in spirit and truth. We worship God here. We worship him not only here, but we worship him on our job, in our office, at home, with our kids. We worship him. We have the opportunity to worship him every single place. Don't think that because you come to this building that you're going to have some unique encounter with God. It's great together with our church family, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's an energy. There's an excitement. There's a camaraderie. There's a lot of good things that happen as a church body but we worship God everywhere because our bodies are the living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's our spiritual act of worship. And so he's going to show very tangibly and visibly this is not about a location. And he wipes it out clean. And so uh, different people interpret Mark 13 different ways. They take this passage different directions. Like, what does this mean? Like, what's he talking about here? I, I got a chart that I'm going to show you, and I'm not going to keep it up long, but it's, you can click in the app and you can see. Go ahead and put that chart up, all right? Um, there's a, a ton of different views on how to tackle this chapter, okay? A ton. These are like the six most popular ways that one would approach this chapter. We're taking the first route, and, and as I told uh, in Life Prep U today, um, it, you know, I could be wrong about some of the things that, that I say today in my take on this passage, but the bottom line is, I don't think, and just keep that up there for a few minutes, I don't think that uh, Jesus cares as much that we know the details about everything other than the fact that the big picture is, you know what, he's coming again. Jesus is returning, we better be ready. Is there an absolute truth to this passage? Yes, there is. But a lot of good people who love Jesus and search the Bible don't agree on how to approach it. So the, the, the way we're going to approach this passage, it's a two-week deal. We look at verses 5 through 23 as a prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Jesus was just asked about that. He just said, look, it's, it's going you know, to be gone. It's, it's going away. There's a new covenant. I'm the mediator for that covenant. 
this, there's not going to be one stone left on another. He's specifically answering questions, I believe, related to that in the first 23 verses. And then in the rest of the chapter, I think it's prophetic of the second coming, Jesus returning again. Now, again, as you see in the chart, there's different people. Some people take this whole chapter to be about the temple. There's other people who take this whole chapter to be about the second coming. There's some people who take it to be that it's a mixture of both. It's a lot of foreshadowing. It's a lot of typology. It's looking ahead. But I, I think every one of these things have a strength and weaknesses. weakness. If it didn't, then everybody would pretty much agree on it. All right. So everyone has a weakness, but yet every one of them could legitimately be the case. I really feel like the first one is the best take on this. Uh, next week, verse 30, will be. I'll show you, we'll see why that's probably the, the most problem verse that causes us to question this. But uh, nevertheless, that's the way that we're going to tackle it. I already warned less in life prep you today. Don't come and complain to me at the end of the message about anything I said that he didn't agree with. I'm just kidding, Les. Les is great to hold me accountable on, on these little nuances of theology. I appreciate him and his knowledge. But I'll admit right off the top that we may miss something or I may get something wrong. So uh, let's go back to the text. What's the first question? When? The disciples want to know, when is this going to happen? When is this destruction? When are one stone on top of another? When is that going to be gone? When is that going to happen, Jesus? And Jesus is going to make sure they understand that this isn't going to happen in the next few days, that there's some things that have to happen. And, and in fact, uh, as he points to the end times, we're going to see he constantly, over in this passage of Scripture, mentions that his kingdom is not yet coming. All right, it's not happening today or tomorrow. It's, go, it's going to be some time. So look at verse 5. So Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So many people are coming, false teachers, deceivers. These people who claim to be the Messiah. These people are going to come and try to lead people astray. And he said there's going to be people who are just out there like today, just sounding these false alarms like the end's here, it's over, it's over. Look what Jesus says. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. He says, don't be alarmed. I mean, who doesn't get alarmed about that kind of thing? I mean, it's naturally, it's natural for us to get alarmed. But when our trust is in God, then we don't have to get worked up over wars or rumors of wars. He said, these things must take place, but the end is not yet. So if these things, if you hear the stuff, it's not yet happening. Um, there was a guy uh, a few years back who um, is a, a friend of mine, and he was going through a, a really, really terrible personal time in his life. He was going through a divorce, just some awful stuff happening financially in his life. And, 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 and he, he cornered me one day. We were talking, and he gave me the most depressing outlook on life that I've ever heard him, you know, ever. I mean, he literally began to tell me, John, I've been watching the stock market. This was back, you know, seven or eight, ten years ago. I've been watching the stock market. I've been reading the prophecy we got these blood moons lining up on these Jewish holidays. It's looking terrible. And I'm not the type to bite on this stuff. You know, I typically don't get anxious. But, man, this guy, he was so convinced. And, and he had all this information, this knowledge about the markets and about inflation and these predictions by different people in, in important places that actually at the end of the conversation, I was a little, a little nervous. I mean, I was a little scared. I was like, well, maybe there's some truth to this. But the bottom line is he was... His situation in life at that point was so bleak that he couldn't see past his next day. I mean, that life was 
falling apart, and it was falling apart all around him. It was terrible. It was awful. And you better be ready because this is happening. Well, seven or eight years later, the guy's in another marriage. He's happy. Things are going good. He's doing well financially. And I get, I'm, I'm probably guessing that it's not as bleak as it was then. We tend to do that. We tend to interpret our, 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 the, the events we see, the things we see happening based upon how we feel about it at the moment. And our feelings are not reliable in very many ways. We talked about this in our Life Prep U class today. If you, if, you, if you want to know God's will, if you want to understand how God works in his will, come to the Life Prep U on the lower level next week, 915. Uh, I'll be leading next week. Daniel will be leading the weeks after that. Uh, I encourage you to be there because so many people have a lot of anxiety about, like, what's God doing? And so much of it's based upon, like, how I feel at the moment and how much stock we should put in that, just like the situation with my friend here. You know, we base a lot. Think about during World War II. If anybody, anybody was alive during World War II, cares to admit that? All right, all right thanks. Oh, yeah, a few. We got a few. Um, during World War II, I'm sure people thought, this is it. This is the end. During the Black Plague, they probably thought, this is it. This is the end. There's been various times in history where horrible things have happen, are happening. The coronavirus, this is the end. Look what's happening. And so we, we read into our current events maybe more than we should when we look at history and see there's been lots of bad things happening over time. But what do we know? We know that something's happening here, right? We know, I guess it was going this way. We know, no, it was this way, right? We know something's happening here. We just can't see behind the curtain to know exactly what it, it, the timetable is and all the details. So Jesus says this, he says, for nation, verse 8, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Be on your guard. He's telling his disciples. He's telling Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So he says, after the temple, you know, leading up to the temples being destroyed, he says, you're going to face all of these things. It's going to be tough on you. He's warning his disciples. It's going to be hard to be my follower. It's going to be difficult to, to trust me and stay faithful to me because everybody's going to be coming at you. But he's telling them, pay attention to what I'm saying because I'm going to give you some insight. I'm going to tell you, I know I'm Jesus. I'm God. I know the future. And so you want to know when this is going to happen? Well, there's some things that are going to happen before that temple gets destroyed. And you need to be aware that it's going to affect you greatly. It's going to be hard times for you. And so, again, be careful in your hard times not to read into that, that this is it. This is the end. Jesus is coming tomorrow. He may be coming tomorrow, but he might not be coming tomorrow. And, and so be careful not to interpret it based upon your feelings. And then verse 10 this is actually, real quick, this is actually one of the problem verses for the way that I'm approaching this passage because many will say, well, look, the gospel wasn't proclaimed to all nations before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. So this can't be talking about the temple being destroyed. It has to be talking about the second coming of Jesus because uh, you know, we know that's not the truth. But let me uh, just tell you in the context of Scripture, oftentimes, the view of the world was based upon their view of what the world was. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul wrote, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. 
Paul says, hey, the gospel is just taking root and bearing fruit in the entire world. But we know when Paul was writing this, the gospel hadn't gone to Africa, East Asia, Australia, and obviously not to the Americas. So how could Paul have written that the gospel had gone to the whole world? Well, he was speaking about his known world, the Mediterranean world at that point. And so for Paul, the gospel had gone forth. And it was amazing how much uh, uh, the gospel went out just in the short years after Jesus ascended back into heaven in 70 when the temple was destroyed. I mean, the disciples got busy. They did. I mean, they took the gospel, they took the Great Commission literally, and they took off and they ran with it and they spread out and they evangelized the known world. Amazing. What's it show you? Because so many people would hear Jesus' prediction about the end, and they would, like, bunker down. they get nervous, right? Like, we better not go anywhere because bad things are happening and the end's coming, so we just need to sit here in our huddle and pray. And, and, and what Jesus said, hey, it's important to pray, but you need to pray, and then you need to go. And you need to go and pray at the same time. Pray as you go. And so the disciples, they uh, left the upper room. Why did they leave the upper room? Because the Holy Spirit came upon them. Look at verse, the next few verses. He says, and when they bring you to trial, they're going to bring you to trial and deliver you over. He says, don't be anxious beforehand what you'll say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. If you've been tracking with us all during this Mark study, you know how clueless the disciples have been throughout this journey. They just, I mean, Jesus tells them something, and they're like scratching their head, like, say that again, Jesus, we didn't understand you. He says it again in English, you know, scratches their head. He didn't say it in literally English, you know, but he says it for them in, in plain speech, as clear as you can be, and they still don't get it. They're not the smartest guys around. But what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, and you read it in the book of Acts, all the stuff that Jesus is saying all came true. They went before councils. They were beaten. They were taken to court. They were taken before governors and kings. Yet there was something different about them. The Holy Spirit had come to dwell in them. They were full of the Holy Spirit, Scripture would say again and again. And it even says, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, he's going to give you in those moments where you're under pressure and, and, and you're maybe tempted to lean back on your education or lack of education in theological matters, or maybe that conversation that I had with you that maybe you don't really remember too well, well, I'm going to recall, you're going to recall those things because the Holy Spirit is going to live within you, and he's going to give you the supernatural ability to do that. And what we see in Acts is these scared disciples who ran and fled when Jesus was arrested and crucified, they become all of a sudden bold and courageous with the gospel message and run to the ends of the world and face so many difficulties because the Holy Spirit indwelled them. And here's the cool truth. If you're a believer in here, the Holy Spirit indwells you as well. And I think that even though this is specifically was for the disciples and it's talking about the temple's destruction and their lives prior to that, I think the promise and the principle is true throughout the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit indwells his children, lives in us, and that he helps us to recall the words of Jesus. And so that's why it's important to read the Bible, to know the scriptures, because the Holy Spirit brings those words to mind 
when you need those. And so you're thinking, how do I talk to my waiter about the gospel? Jesus says, look, you study to show yourself approved. You know the word. You're in the word. I'm going to help you. I'm going to bring back to mind. You ever had that happen? You ever been in a situation where the Holy Spirit just gives you like exactly the right thing and the right verse at the right time? And you're like, I don't even really remember memorizing that verse. I don't remember really knowing that verse that well. And the Holy Spirit just brings it back to you. Pretty amazing. Now, I do say, side note, I do say that this, some people want to take this and apply it to everything, like preachers, don't prepare, don't have a sermon outline, don't write your sermon out, don't, don't prepare yourself. Just stand up, say whatever comes to mind, and that's the Holy Spirit going to work through you. I don't think this applies to any and every situation. I think you can find plenty of verses like Timothy I, I referred to where he says, study to show yourself approved to God. And, but I think he's talking about in those moments where you're brought up before the authorities are on the spot and, and, you're, and the disciples and us as well, Okay, what are you going to say in your defense? The Holy Spirit empowers us and helps us during those moments. And so the disciples, full of the Holy Spirit, would be able to change the world, turn it upside down. And then verse 12, he says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. He's just saying the gospel is just going to destroy people. Family members are going to put their faith in Jesus and, and you're going to pit one family member against the other, and you'll be hated by all, he says, for my namesake. People are not going to accept you because you bear the name of Jesus. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says, those who are my children, those who are of the elect, those who, who have the Holy Spirit, you will maintain to the end. You'll, you'll keep persevere to the end, and you'll be saved. He says, that's what I'm calling you to do, guys. That's what you want to know when and you want to know how, all right? This is when. Here's what's going to happen leading up to it, and it's not going to be pretty necessarily for you, but amazing things are going to happen in this world as a result of your message. And then verse 14, we see the mood changes here. Up to this point, it's been stand firm, but now we get a, a little different, and I think Jesus is responding to the second part of that question when, he, when, he, when they're asking, what's going to be the signs that all these things are about to be accomplished? When this is about to happen, when this is like literally, it's right on our doorstep, what, what's the signs of this temple going to be destroyed? Verse 14, and, and when you see the abomination of desolation, abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then in, in parentheses, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, that's pretty specific right there, right? The, the abomination of desolation, he's standing where he shouldn't be. At that moment, get out of town, right? Get out of here. Run for your lives. What's he talking about? This abomination of, of desolation is a, a, a phrase, some language picked up from the book of Daniel, okay? Okay. And in Daniel 11 and 12, Daniel is having a vision, and we see pagan armies invading Jerusalem. They stop the sacrifices in the temple, and instead they set up this abomination that makes desolation. In fact, let's read real quick. Let's read the two verses in Daniel that talk specifically about this. Verse 11, uh, 31 and chapter 11. Forces, this is Daniel's vision, forces from him 
shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. desolate. And then verse 11 of chapter 12. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. All right? There's a lot of people who jump into this and they're like taking these days and turn them into years and months and all this stuff. All right, we're not going there today, but the truth is this is amazing that Jesus, as he points back to this prophecy and this vision of Daniel, as he alludes to this, what we get from this, uh, knowing that the temple and the connection there. So many people believe that this prophecy was fulfilled about 150 years before Jesus when Jerusalem was conquered and this ruler came in and he actually built a pagan altar right there in the holies of holy and sacrificed a pig on the altar. But I don't think that fulfillment could have been the, the case 150 years before because as Jesus is talking here, I think he's suggesting that Daniel's vision, his prophecy, has not yet occurred. He's pointing to the future. Now, sometimes prophecy was fulfilled in part and then later on in fullness it was fulfilled. Sometimes it, it stages a prophetic um, uh, fulfillment. And look, some of you at this point, you're like, okay, uh, get to the bottom of the line, all right? I, I, I'm with you sometimes on this prophecy. I had an Old Testament prophecy class in college, and uh, my professor, uh, bless his heart, I mean, he, he was so smart that, like, the things he said were amazing, and, like, I scratched my head a lot, and finally I just gave up. I like, uh, you know, he, we're going to Isaiah, we're going to Daniel, we're going to all these Old Testament, back to the New Testament. We're back and forth, back and forth. All right, I, I just can't track with this. And so I just gave up. I'm like, I'm just going to listen enough to make a B in the course and get through it, all right? And, and so maybe that's where you're at. You're like, well, this stuff's pretty heavy. This is pretty deep stuff. Well, hopefully, I'm not near as smart as my professor was, and, and so I'm going to try to keep it really simple for you and real basic. But I think it's amazing that based upon Daniel, this abomination of desolation is generally agreed upon to be some sort of pagan desecration of the temple. It's some pagan desecration of the temple. Now, here's where it gets cool to me is that this historian named Josephus, who lived literally, he was born just a few years after Jesus ascended back into heaven. He was a historian and he wrote, he wasn't a Christian, he was actually a Pharisee. And he wrote that the greatest desecration of the temple took place under Roman general Titus at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So he says, this historian says, the greatest desecration of all took place when the temple was destroyed. Right before the temple was destroyed, this vile, awful, pagan stuff happened in the holies of holy, in the, in the court of God. All this happened, he says, man, this is, this is, this is the worst. And so that leads me to believe this prophecy of Daniel definitely had its fulfillment in 70 A.D. And you know something else is, is pretty cool? That look at the end of this passage. He says, let the reader, under, oh, the end of this verse, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I don't know if you've ever watched any like shows about ancient times and so on, but when an army uh, was coming to conquer an area, People typically didn't flee to the mountains. They went to the cities because the cities were the places where, that were most secure. The walls were built to protect them. They had the army that would be fortified 
to protect against the alien, uh, the, the invaders who were coming from the, to attack. And, and so it was all set up to defend. In fact, they could uh, be in this place for months and months and months because they had the supplies necessary. But Jesus says, when you see this desecration happening, when you see this abomination happening, look, it's time to get out of town and flee to the mountains. And we know that in the first century, when the Romans were invading, the Jews who lived in the countryside, they all came to Jerusalem. They came to the fortified city. But history tells us that the Christians were not there. The Christians were not there. Why? Because they had followed Jesus' words, which I think it's, it's, it's great, isn't it? The little, the little parentheses there. Let the reader understand. You're like, extra, okay? Really pay close attention to this. And they took off, and they fled to the mountains, and they were spared. That's, that's amazing fulfillment of the prophecy. And then verse 15 through 19, he just tells us how awful this time when, if we take my take on this, when the Romans were coming in, that how terrible this time was going to be. He says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, don't go in your house to get anything out. He, he's saying, get out, quick. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Just head out of town. For alas, for the woman who is pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. So, I mean, how practical is this? Like, hope that it just doesn't happen during the time when it's going to be hard to get out and, and save yourself. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So he says, drop everything, get out of town. And then verse 20, the grace of God in this. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, again, Jesus is talking about the future, right? No human being would be saved. He's talking about it in past tense, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he, he shortened the days. So he says, this time is going to be so violent. It's going to be so terrible. It's going to be so awful that if God didn't intervene and determined that this destruction would not last too long, even his chosen people, the objects of his grace, would not be able to survive. But he says, I shortened it so they could, would, would survive. What a comfort that is. Think about that just personally, God's grace. So many times we just take God's grace and his provision, his protection for granted. And, and when things go awry, things go bad, we look and we like, why me, God? Why is this happening to me? But think about all the times when God's grace and his mercy was upon you, which you and I don't deserve, that he protects you, he spared you. That maybe, you know, your, your kids are healthy, you're, you're, you're in a good marriage, or, you know, you, you've not been injured, or you have pretty good health. I mean, all these things we take for granted that God's grace is upon us, that we focus in on the things that go wrong. And God, where are you? Where are you at? And God says, man, my grace is sufficient. It's amazing. And you know, like when you hurt your little toe, right? The, the, the world's coming to an end, like I can't make it without my toe being okay. And, and we know that just life falls apart when one little thing goes wrong. And we're walking around with pretty much, uh, compared to a lot of the world, nothing is bad in our lives. Or very little is bad in our life for most of us. Some of you, yes, you're facing extreme tragedy. And, and very difficult times, but even in that, God's grace is great. It's amazing. And he sustains, 
and he protects his remnant, his people. In verse 21 and 22, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, during this awful time, he says, don't believe it. Disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. And they'll even perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. He's saying, if it's possible for even those like you, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, to be led astray, these guys are going to be impressive. You know, I'm going away, Jesus is saying. I, I'm, I'm going to be gone for a while. And, and you're going to be tempted to gravitate toward somebody else who claims to be Messiah or this person because they're able to do supernatural things that maybe this is who God's bringing the kingdom in through. Maybe Jesus was just transitionary. You know, it, it's not about him. It's about somebody else. He's saying, no, don't believe that. Don't buy into it. And it's going to be convincing, he says. Even the elect can be tempted and they'd better consider this person's authenticity very carefully because God's going to protect his own, but it's very, very tempting. So he says, be on your guard, verse 23. I have told you all things beforehand. So he says, disciples, be on your guard. I've warned you. You're, you're warned, right? You're, I've, I've told you, be prepared. It's going to not be good for you in a lot of ways, but my grace is going to be amazing. I'm going to protect you for the mission, the mission. The remnant will be preserved for what reason? So the gospel can go forth. You see, it's natural to make life about us, even as Christians. And the verse I quote nearly every message, it seems like anymore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. You see, life isn't about us. Life's about the gospel. Life's about the message. It's about getting the word out living for the glory of God and making him known. And so when we shrink down our existence to like our preferences, our feelings, what we want and our likes and dislikes, that color or this color, we're walking by while we're here, the gospel, pointing people to Jesus. And so he makes it clear to the disciples, it's going to get tough, it's going to get difficult. It's not going to feel real good for you. In fact, 11 of the 12 are going to be martyred. But he says, trust me. Do what you're told. Stay busy. And look at what I've told you right now. When this happens in 70, you're going to be like, whoa, Jesus told us. It's amazing. We fled. We got out. We were protected. That's specific. Well, it's amazing. God is for us, not against us. Because he's for us. Because he loves us, we're his image bearers, and we take his word, we take his truth, and we spread it to the ends of the earth. I'd like to finish with, this was a few days ago, my devotion that I read in the morning by Paul Tripp called New Morning Mercies. And I think it sums it up so well, how we're supposed to live our lives and our perspective. He says, here's the bottom line. Right here, right now, God isn't so much working to deliver you to your personal definition of happiness. He's not committed to give you a predictable schedule, happy relationships, or comfortable surroundings. He hasn't promised you a successful career, a nice place to live, and a community of people who appreciate you. What he has promised you is himself. And what he brings to you is the zeal of his transforming grace. No, he's not first working for your happiness 
He's committed to your holiness. So we can point people to, to God who's holy. Be holy as I am holy. That doesn't mean he isn't offering you less than what you hope for, that, he, that he's offering you less than what you hope for, but much, much more. In grace, he is intent on delivering you from the greatest, deepest, and most long-term problem, sin. He offers you gifts of grace that transcend the moment, that literally are of eternal value. He has not unleashed his power in your life only to deliver you to things that quickly pass away and that have no capacity to satisfy your heart. This means that often when you are tempted to think that God is loving you less because your life is hard, he is actually loving you more. The disciples. It'd be easy to look at this and say, Jesus, we didn't sign up for this. He says, trust me. My grace will meet you every step of the way. I'm going to save you, flee from town, listen to me, get out of town when this happens. But you know what? You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. But my grace. And in Revelation, what does it say? It says to pray, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want Jesus to return on his schedule and his time. We don't sit around trying to figure it out. We stay busy with the gospel. And we live for his glory, not our own. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this amazing passage of scripture. We thank you, God, that you just revealed to us uh, truth and you just revealed to us just you're truly the son of God because no one could make these claims and do these things apart from being who you said you were. And God, may our trust in the day-to-day mundane moments of our life just build and may our confidence in you become greater and greater and we become bold and courageous because we're full of the Holy Spirit. We're full of the words of Jesus. And we take this message and we live it and we are holy as you are holy. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness in those many, many moments where we get it wrong in this messy life. And God, I pray that you'll give us more grace for others in this process as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.